Welcome to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's Word. Please join us now as we hear a message from Pastor Toledo. Happy Sunday! Happy Sunday, CT! I, uh, both, I can speak on behalf of me. We are, we are happy to be here. We love the Toledos, their family. We love all of you. We're so proud of this church. You guys are the real deal. You're doing an amazing job here. And uh, the Kilpatrick campus and all the things that God is going to do. And so we're glad to be here. And um, before, before I, I start, you know, I, I came across this psalm, and it's a Thanksgiving psalm. Let me read it before you respond. It's from the message translation. It's the 100th Psalm, and it says this. On your feet now, applaud God. Bring a gift of laughter. Sing yourself into his presence. Know this God is God. He made us. We didn't make him. We're his people, his well-tended sheep. Enter with the password of thank you. Make yourself at home talking praise. Thank him and worship him. Now, God inhabits the praises of his people. Just what we felt a moment ago when the worship team was leading us, we, we felt his presence. I'd like, before I speak, because I want God's presence while I'm speaking, I'd like you to get up on your feet and begin to thank him. Come on, sing your own song. Just tell God you love him. Just worship God. Just praise him. Praise him whatever language you feel comfortable in. Hallelujah. We won't let the rocks cry out. We won't let the rocks cry out. We will praise you. Your people will praise you. In your house, on your day. Bless you, Lord. 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 Come on before you're seated one more time. Let's applaud him. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Worship team, thank you for helping us. Wow. Um, I came, God put this word on my heart today specifically for CT, Chicago Tabernacle. And uh, it's simply good news because I know you know that we've been hearing a lot of bad news, a lot of not so good news for the last 15, 16 months. And our hearts are broken for some of the things that have happened, many things. Um, we've had 45 fatalities in our church alone. And we just opened three weeks ago. Today would be our, our, our fourth Sunday open. And, you know, we just had to go through some really rough times and releasing staff and just doing whatever we had to do to get by. But what I want to remind you, listen, this is simple, very simple, but I want to remind you that God loves you. Every single one of you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And it's not a human kind of love that depends on what we get or emotions or, or circumstances. It's an agape kind of love. It's a divine love. It's a supernatural love. It's a love that doesn't just rise when circumstances are good and, and fall when circumstances are not good. No, no, no. God's love is unconditional, everlasting. It's unfailing. And sometimes that's so hard for us to process because we're all based, we kind of been raised on a performance-based mentality. You do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you get punished. But that's not the kingdom of God. God loves us regardless. Over and over and over again, the Bible talks about God's unfailing love. In fact, I want you to take notes. 
I want, you, I want you to not just take my word for it. I want you to search the scriptures. In Acts 17, the Berean Christians searched the scriptures for what Paul was telling them to see if it was true. I don't want you to just take my word. I want you to take God's word and understand how much he loves you. So I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And I want you to have the faith to believe that God loves you regardless, regardless God loves you simply because he has chosen to love us. God loves us when we don't feel lovely. God loves us when other people don't love us. God loves us when we don't even love ourselves. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wake up in the morning and say, I don't love you, Derso. But God loves us. In fact, listen to this verse, and I really want this to saturate into your minds. Romans 5.8, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we didn't go to church, he loved us. <laughs> when we didn't read our Bibles, when we didn't pray, he loved us. I, I couldn't help but thinking about this, and maybe Maria might touch on it. Tuesday, she does a much better job with it than I do. And you maybe have heard it before because we, we've shared it here before, I think. But back in September 1975, before most of you were born, we were at a resort, a club med in Mexico, and we were, we were living together, we weren't married, we were vulgar, we used profanity, we were doing drugs, and we were living just a wild type of life that we thought was so cool. And uh, we were in this, uh, this resort, and I went out for a walk, and Maria started to talk to God but she was angry because she wasn't happy and she was using profanity talking to God. You would think God would just send out a lightning bolt and lightning bolt, but he didn't. He didn't. And then when I came and then God met her in a very special way, she couldn't really explain it to me at the time, but God met her and she said, when I got, when I got back in the room, she goes, can we go to church when we get back to New York? And I said, church, what for? I don't need church. I'm a good guy. I'm not hurting anybody. All those lies you tell yourself to convince you that you don't need God. So I, I, I just kind of yesed her, but everything changed in the vacation. She didn't want to get high anymore. She didn't want to go dancing at night. And, and she kind of shut down the shop. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the vacation wasn't so fun anymore. So I said, I'll go to church when you get back. But when we get back, I'll go to church. But that night, we'll go to the club. I'll have drugs and You'll open up the shop, right? And uh, she said, yeah, 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 whatever. And so somebody invited us. In fact, some friends prayed for us who were druggies just like us. They brought us to church. And uh, that Sunday night, this is in September 75, we both gave our hearts to the Lord. And, 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 and the reason why I'm saying this is because God should have struck me dead while I was still a sinner. While I was walking up the steps to the church and I had drugs in my pocket and I'm only thinking how I'm going to get back with my girlfriend. God should have killed me. I was going to church for all the wrong reasons. But because he loves us in spite of ourselves, he didn't kill me. He saved me. He saved the both of us that one night. And, and that's, that's, that's the kind of love. While you were yet a sinner, whatever you were doing, while you were yet a sinner, while we were all steep in the ungodly things that we're doing, God was saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I want to rescue you. I want to save you. I want to bring you to an understanding of this incredible love that I have for you. Amazing. I came across this quote. It says this, there is nothing you can do that will make God stop loving you because 
there was nothing you did that made God start loving you. Let me read it again. There is nothing you can do that will make God stop loving you because there was nothing you did that made God start loving you. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we praise. That's the God that we have to be grateful for everything that we have. You know, someone once said that when the Bible mentions something more than once, we should think twice about it. Well, in 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16, it simply says God is love. God is love. Love is godly. And uh, it's that, it's, like I said, it's not that kind of just romantic, emotional love. There's nothing wrong with that. But God's love is a much higher level. It's called the agape love. It's mentioned over 200 times in the scriptures. And agape love means it's unconditional. It's sacrificial. It's forever. Probably the most familiar verse when it comes to God's love is John 3.16, which says, for God so loved the world. Think about that. The world doesn't ha hasn't really been very accepting of God throughout its existence, but yet God loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that would ever believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The world. Now, here's what I believe. I don't think God appreciates some of the decisions the world makes, yet God still loves the world. Every race, every generation, every man, every woman, God loves the world. And that helps me to realize what an amazing God we serve. He's so good in spite of the things that we do. God's love is unconditional. It has no limits, no boundaries, no barriers. And it's a choice. He chooses to love us. In fact, Jesus said this in John, in that last supper meeting that he had with the disciples in John 15, he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. In fact, first Peter must have remembered that because later on when he writes the church, to, the church, to the churches in his first letter, the second chapter, he says, you are chosen. You are chosen. That's God's love for us. Paul planted a church in Greece in an area called Corinth, which is in Greece. And Corinth was a very ungodly community. In fact, in those days, if you wanted to say that someone was a pervert or a degenerate, you would say, you're a Corinthian. They would actually use the name of the town almost like a, a curse word. And they had no morals and no boundaries, like I said, and, and, and they just lived in recklessly. But he wanted them to understand about the kind of love that God had for them. And he talks about this agape love in 1 Corinthians 13. And here's some of the attributes of that love. This agape love that God has for you and me is patient and it's not irritable. And listen to this, and keeps no record of wrong. Keeps no record. That means the things that I did that I'm ashamed of. God says, Michael, what are you talking about? I don't even remember that. I don't remember the divorce. I don't remember the drug addiction. I don't remember the profanity. I don't remember the immorality. I don't remember the abortion. I don't remember the crime. I don't remember all the terrible things you did. I choose not to remember them. I choose you. That's the kind of love God has for us. Now, I'm not making light of sin. God died on the cross for sin. Yet he chose to love us in such a way that it's almost impossible to comprehend. God, I remember what I did. Well, I chose not to remember because I love you so much. I love you so much. That's why, you know what the spirit is? There's liberty. God's love for you is not because we're good, not because we're kind. He just loves us. The apostle John writes in his first letter, the fourth chapter, 10 verse. This is real love, real agape love. Not that we love God, but that he loves us. That he loved us in spite of ourselves. In other words, 
God just loves us not dependent on anything we could do and not do. In fact, even in the Old Testament, even though the people of God were just so rebellious and so ungrateful and so many times, he, he tells Moses to write in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor chose you because you were more in numbers or because you were great, but because he loves you. There's nothing we can do that can impress God. And all the things that we sometimes do, we would think God would just say, enough, enough with you, Derso. I can't put up with you anymore. That's not God. That's not God. The people of God that rebelled against the Lord, even in the days of Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah to write this in 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love that lasts forever. And then he tells the church at Rome, Romans 8, 39, nothing in all creation, nothing, no thing, nothing, nada in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Someone needed to hear that in both services today. Nothing can separate you. We may choose to separate ourselves from God. Well, I'm not going back to church because of the things I did and the things I said, and, and I, I just, I just I can't face Pastor Toledo or Pastor Chrissy. I just, nothing, you may choose that, but God says, I won't separate myself from you. I won't say, I'll, I'll even go to a club med if that's where you're going to go. I'll do whatever I got to do to get your attention. Because remember, Romans says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Not rules, not regulations, not traditions. It's God's kindness. In fact, you know, we know a lot about David. And the, the Bible really writes a lot of things about the men and women of God. Sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not so great. Because God wants to know he loves us anyway. And uh, King David, we remember him, that he was a shepherd boy, and he, he took Goliath down with a sling and a rock, and he became the king of Israel, and he fought great battles and raised tons of money to build the temple. And he did some amazing things, but he did some not-so-amazing things, like the time he saw Bathsheba bathing, and he said he wanted her. He told one of his servants to go get her and bring her to my chambers. And one of the servants said, well, you know, David, that, that's Uriah's wife, Uriah. He's one of your mighty men. He would be like the Navy SEALs in our time. He's, he's one of your mighty men. That, that's his wife. David said, bring her to me. And if you know the rest of the story, he sleeps with her. Maybe she was willing, maybe she was not, but he was the king. And she ends up becoming pregnant. And he tries to hide that by getting Uriah drunk and making him think he made her pregnant. Such deception, such dishonesty. And when that wouldn't work, he had one of his captains send Uriah and saw other men up against the wall against these enemies that they were fighting and the arrows shot off the wall and killed him and those other men. So he, he was not only adulterer and or a fornicator, but he also, he, he had him assassinated. And yet in 1 Samuel 13, before that, and then in Acts 13, after that, the Bible says David's a man after God's own heart. Amazing. In fact, later on in years, he realized how much God loves him, loved him. So he writes the 103rd Psalm, 10th verse to the 14th, and it says this. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. And that's the truth for every single one of us. I don't deserve to be up here. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Or repay us according to our iniquities, our mistakes, our failures. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his love for those that fear him or trust him. As high as the heavens, you can, you can get dizzy if you go up too high at times. 
And guys, that's how, that's how high my love is for you. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, that's infinity. You can't measure that. As far as east is from the west, so far as he, he removes our transgressions, our wrongs, our crimes, our mistakes from us. As a father, and that's an Abba father, as a father would had compassion on his children. Let me just stop there for a moment. We honored fathers. And oftentimes, and I only know this with pastoring for over more than three decades, there are some of us that don't have good memories of our dads or our stepdads or our grandfathers. And, and that's sad. And we may have that, this negative picture um, towards God because we call him our father who art in heaven. But let me tell you something. Look to the scriptures and get a good picture of who your father in heaven is. In fact, I would like to suggest to you some homework. Go to the New Testament, turn to the Gospel of Luke, and go all the way to the 15th chapter. Skip past the lost sheep, skip past the lost, lost coin, and get to the point that talks about the lost son. And it's about a young man who lived in his father's home, and his father obviously was wealthy, and he told his dad, I want my inheritance now. Basically, he was saying, I don't want to wait till you die. How, how much disrespect is that? I don't want to wait till you die. Give me my money now so I can live my life the way I want to. So the father gives him the, his inheritance. He leaves, goes to a foreign country. Depending on your translation, it says that he squandered his money with prostitutes and drinking and riotous living till he had no more money. And you know when you run out of money, you oftentimes run out of friends. He had no more money. He had to get a job feeding pigs. He was actually eating the pig food in the mud. And he came to his senses, the Bible says, and he goes, I'm going to go back to my father and maybe he'll hire me as a worker. And so he makes his way back and he's rehearsing what he's going to say to his, his father. But the Bible tells us about the father was looking out from the house and sees his son coming towards him. And his father, who was a senior, an elderly man, runs down to meet him. Now, in those days, it was, it was disrespectful, it was dishonorable for an older man to run. But he runs to his son puts his arms around him, even though his son is probably still smelly and stinky from the pigsty, uh, the pigsty, he puts his arms around him, kisses him, tells his servants, his staff, make sure you kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a feast and a dinner. Get me a ring. Get me a robe. Get me some sandals because my son has returned. He once was a lost, but now he's found. He once was dead, but now he's alive. That's the Father God that we're talking about that we still might be smelling of our sin and God will hug you and kiss you and welcome you back into his house. It's, just, it's hard for us to conceive that. We're not wired that way. But God is that agape love, unconditional love, sacrificial love, loving us no matter what. And then listen, in this unprecedented time that we're in, in this climate that we're in. We're hearing a lot of terrible things. That's why I felt God, I had to tell you, God loves you. You need to leave here knowing God loves you, regardless. And that's the good news. But there's a danger because of the times we're living in that I want to make you aware of. And I'm not an expert with this, but carbon dioxide, you can't see it, you can't smell it, but it will kill you if you're around it too much. Well, there, there is a, something you can't really see and you can't smell it, but it will kill you spiritually if you're around it too much, and that's worry. That's worry. Worry basically says, God, I can't trust you. I'm giving you my life. I, you know, I said the sinner's prayer, but now I'm so full of worry that I really can't believe you're going to get me through this season. I can't really believe you're going to get me past this COVID thing 
or my job or whatever we might be facing. And so worry just sucks the, the faith right out of you. It sucks the air right out of you. And it causes you to just think and get emotionally all twisted about maybe the things that you're facing. It pulls you apart literally from the inside. And you know what? When, you, when we worry, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. When worry gets hold of your heart, it gets a hold of your mind, you forfeit the peace of God. You forfeit the joy of God. You no longer, the joy of the Lord is not your strength any longer because you're all full of worry. And you get scared. And you can have seen great things, but when worry captures you, it robs you of your faith. Remember the disciples when they were in the storm with Jesus? Jesus was in the boat. You know, when you accept Jesus Christ, Jesus is in the boat of your life. He's with you. Well, he's in the boat, and they came across a storm, and Jesus told them, go to the other side. Didn't tell them about the storm, but he said, go to the other side. And as they were going, a storm erupted, and the disciples were so afraid because they thought they were going to drown. And one of them, we don't know who the Bible is nameless, but one of them, maybe a couple of them, went back to Jesus and said, don't you care that we're going to drown? Now, they seen Jesus heal the centurion's servant without even going to the centurion's servant. They seen Jesus turn water into wine. They seen Jesus raise the widow of Nahum's son, who was dead, right out of the coffin. They seen all this, but now they were caught in a precarious situation. And now because they began to worry, it took out faith. It caused them to be concerned. It caused them to yell at Jesus. That's what worry will do to us, to the best of us. When we allow it to get a hold of us, it causes us to forget about this God that loves us no matter what. You know, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, he says this, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your emotions. Trust in him, acknowledge him, and don't lean on your own understanding. It doesn't mean that you're mindless. It just means no matter what you might be feeling at the time, you need to trust God first and foremost. Research tells us 85% of, of the things we worry about never actually happen. And I listen I've really been shying away from the news and I don't even touch social media. That's just my opinion. But you know, all you hear about is the prices rising on gas, which is already has risen. Food is rising and clothing is rising and we can get all, we don't know if they're going to shut down again and all this stuff gets a hold of you and all that worry causes migraines and insomnia and uh, it, it just, it wrecks you. In fact, uh, there's a gym that I go to and there's a guy who's a trainer there and he's in incredible shape. He eats all the right food. He's got definition. He just looks amazing, but he has ulcers. Think about that. And I talked to him about this. You are so worried about the outside, but the inside, you're sick because you're worried. And, and that's what worry does to you. You might, like, you might look good in front of everybody else, but worry is eating you up inside. It's robbing you of your faith in Christ Jesus. It's robbing of your confidence in the love that God has for you. You know, it's, 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 it's not a mistake that Jesus talked about worry both in, in, in Matthew and Luke's gospel, in Galilee and in Judea, because he knew that we're prone to worry. In, in Matthew's gospel, six times, he mentions it four times in 10 verses. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, because he knew it would just choke the life out of us. In the sermon in Matthew 13, in the sermon of the parable in the sower, talks about the sower giving out seed. The seed is the word of God and flowing on different ground, different uh, toil, soil. And uh, on one of the places it falls, it falls among the weeds and the weeds choke the growth of the plant. He says, I liken that to people who worry that when we worry, it chokes the very life out of the word of God. No matter how good Pastor Toledo and his team is preaching up here, when you walk out those doors, if you're worrying, that worry will choke the very word Pastor Toledo has deposited in our hearts. So worry does. And this season, boy, where, where there's so many Christians consumed with worry. 
worried about coming to church, worried about serving, worried about paying their tithes, worried about a whole bunch of things. And, it, and, 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 and what happens is what you know, what we know, what we were convinced about in, in years past now gets suffocated, gets asphyxiated because we're worrying. Worrying to a point where we're not even doing what we're supposed to do. Paul in a prison, the apostle Paul in a prison writes to a church that he found in Philippi and he writes to them, be anxious for nothing. In a prison, possibly going to be killed, executed. He says, be anxious for nothing. Do you know that there are, you can check this out, there is 365 do not worries or do not fears or fear nots in the Bible. 365, that's one for every single day that you wake up. You can wake up in the morning and say, God, I am not going to fear today. Like the matter that fell daily, that's going to sustain me. That's going to keep me. 365, I don't think that's coincidence. I think God did that. God says, I know my people. I know that they can worry. I want them to know that every day they got to do not fear or a fear not every day keeping them. We don't need to worry. We can trust God's love, his unfailing love, and know that he... He has our back. I was thinking about this. In fact, I'm really, I, I was kind of wishing I would be preaching on Jonah because you hear about that guy that got swallowed by a whale on the Northeast, right? So all the, all the skeptics, they said, nah, whale can't swallow anyone. Well, he just did. And it was on CNN even. You know what I mean? It's just amazing. Anyway, I'm not talking about Jonah. I want to talk about Noah because there's a classic example of someone trusting God in the most stressful situations. We know that the earth, the people on the earth were, were just very sinful. And God said, I'm going to end this. And he calls upon Noah to build an ark. Big rectangle, coffin-like ark with no rudder, no motor, no sails. Multiple levels. The size of a football field and a half. Huge. Uh, most commentators believe it took about 70 years for him to build. No Home Depot. No Lowe's, no electric tools. He had to do it all by hand. Him and his three sons, his three daughter-in-laws, and his wife. Eight of them. By the way, eight's the number of new beginnings. And so he builds this ark, preaches righteousness for 120 years, and then God says, okay, the day has come. Get in the ark. Bring two of every different kind of animals in, in the ark with you and wait. For seven days, they sat in the ark and it didn't rain. For seven days, they just sat there. And I'm sure... If he was skeptical or if he didn't trust in the love of God, he would begin to doubt that he even heard from God. You know, the first lie ever spoken in the Bible was, did God really say? Did God, he's still saying that, you know. You hear from God and the enemy will come and say, did God really say? Yes, he did. He told Noah to build an ark and get inside. And for seven days they waited. And then finally on the eighth day it rained. And it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. What was that like? I mean, when he, when he began to hear the water hitting the top of the deck and it didn't stop. Not on the first day, not on the 10th day, not on the 20th day, the 30th day, the 40th day. What was it like when the boat began to shift from the increase of the water? Maybe bowing forward, bowing back, going side to side. What, 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 what was that like in that, in that arc? He had to trust the love of God. Had to. And then after spending 371 days in the ark, it's a year, never hearing a second word of God. In Genesis 8, God says, okay, Noah, the water's every Sunday, and you can get out. Total trust in God's love. Why I'm liking that? Because we're hearing all kinds of things 
in the world right now. And it's coming against the ark that we have, the ark that we have in Christ Jesus. And if we're not careful, we'll listen and we'll get afraid. And I want you to know, no matter what you might not be hearing from God right now, God still loves you. He will keep you. He has your back and he will bring you through no matter what. Because nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No sin, no failure on our part. There's nothing that will do that. There's an appointed time that God will intervene. It was by faith that Noah did what he did and stayed close to God. In fact, years later, God tells Isaiah to write to the people of God, again, to affirm the Noah episode. He writes this in 54.8, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Verse 9, just as I swore in the time of Noah. There's affirmation here. Jesus, even later on, when he was talking about his second coming, said, like in the days of Noah. Noah is not just a, a fairy tale for us to dismiss. It's a demonstration of somebody in a very stressful situation for a long period of time trusting God. And I want to encourage you. I want to I make sure you leave here encouraged, knowing that God loves you, even in these stressful times. Now, it's lightening up a little bit, and I'm glad that's why we're able to come here. We were supposed to come here a year ago. But things are changing for the good. I'm happy about that, but something may turn again. They keep talking about these, these, these new strains that are coming out, and we can get very fearful and think, well, you know, God did, the, God did it with COVID, but what is he going to do now with this next strain coming? And uh, we need to understand, you know what? God loves us no matter what. He's going to keep us, and, 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 and we're going to get through whatever we got it through. I don't, I want to say this carefully and respectfully, but I don't want your friends even your family or the news media or the celebrities or the politicians or anybody rob you of the love that God has for you, that God is going to keep you. He's going to keep you until he, he's ready to take us home. And um, does it mean that there aren't things that we have to be concerned about? Sure. But remember, on the last night that Jesus was the disciple in the upper room, he knew they would be traumatized. John 14, 1, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Well, how do I do that, God? Trust in God. Trust in me, Jesus said. That's what we do. We trust in the love of God that's unfailing and will never end. Musicians, you can come, please. I asked them to prepare this song that they'll sing in a moment, or the chorus of it anyway. By the way, you know what? Uh, George Mueller, uh, maybe Pastor has mentioned that to you, but he wrote an autobiography that's worth getting. Very inexpensive, maybe $2. Thin little book. I like thin books. Get through them real quick. But George Mueller depended on God's love for millions of dollars back in the late 1800s when he started to take care of orphans in England. Great book to encourage your faith no matter what you're facing, knowing that. And he was a rascal. He got drunk the day his father got died. Uh, he got locked up. He did some cr crazy things, but God used him and saved him. You know, Peter, he obviously heard Jesus say, don't be anxious about anything. He writes to the church later on and he actually took it from the 95th, uh, 55th Psalm where it says, cast all your cares, cast all your worries, cast all your issues, cast all your problems on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That word care could be substituted because he loves you. He loves you. So I want to tell you a story before we sing. And uh, it's about a missionary doctor who was in Africa. And uh, she had an orphanage. And she went there without any promised support, but she was just going to trust God. And... Um, in fact, her book is Give Me This Mountain. It's another book worth reading. Um, her name was Dr. Helen Rosenbeer. And uh, she had this orphanage. And one night, uh, a mom 
came to the orphanage with a little two-year-old girl. The mom was pregnant. And the mom went into labor the night that she arrived. And she ended up having this premature baby, but the mom died. And so now Dr. Helen has this premature baby she has to take care of. And this little two-year-old girl that is now abandoned and orphan. And she doesn't know what to do. And uh, at night, there was no electricity. And the nights got cool. Even though it was a tropical place, during the day it was hot, but the nights got cool. And so they wanted to keep the baby warm, but they didn't have anything. They didn't have a hot water bottle. Like I said, there was no electricity. So they started a fire in the fireplace, and then they took turns, the team did, the staff, of holding the baby and just sitting close to the fire to the next day. It was a long night, but the baby lived, and the baby was, was, was kept safe. Well, the next morning, Dr. Helen gathers all the staff and the children and tells them about what happened last night, that this young woman came, and she was pregnant, and this is her little baby, and uh, she left a two-year-old daughter behind, and, and the mom passed away. And we got to take care of this, this baby. But, you know, we, we, we got to keep her warm. And so while she's telling the staff this, and then we're going to have a little prayer meeting, this young girl, Ruth, 10 years old, an orphan herself, stands up and says, God, you know what happened, and you know about this little baby. So, God, we need a hot water bottle, and we need it today. Otherwise, the baby's going to die. And, and now while she's saying this, Dr. Helen is listening to this, and she's proud about the, the faith that this 10-year-old has, but, but she's saying in her heart, I don't think this is going to happen. And theoretically, we know God could do anything, like all of us in this room. But is he going to really do this? And before she could just finish her thoughts, Ruth once again says, says to God, and God, not only do we need a hot water bottle today, but we need a doll, a pretty little doll, to show this little girl that you really love her. Amen. So Dr. Helen is like flabbergasted. She's not going to correct Ruth. It was a great prayer. And uh, she sends the kids off to their chores and she goes around doing her rounds. And while she was away, a truck pulled up and dropped this big box off on the veranda. And someone told her, Dr. Helen, there's a delivery for you. So she goes back to the house where the children were playing and she sees this big box. And she starts to cry. And she brings the box inside with the kids and she opens the box and says, come on, children, come around. And they're pulling out typical things like socks and pampers and underwear, children's clothes, bandages. And lo and behold, there in the middle of the box is a hot water bottle. And she's saying, who would send a hot water bottle to tropical Africa? But God. And now she's really emotional. And as she's holding up this hot water bottle to show the kids, Ruth, our prayer warrior, <laughs> she says, well, if God sent the hot water bottle, where's the doll? And she goes in the box herself and pulls out this little doll. And all the kids are applauding. And, and, and Ruth, Ruth says to Dr. Helen, Dr. Helen, can I bring this to the little girl so that she'll know that God really loves her? And Ruth Helen, uh, Dr. Helen says, sure. Go ahead, Ruth. But what, what we don't know is that she hasn't received a package in four years. Four years. And there was a note in the box and dated. And that box was mailed five months earlier. Before they even prayed, God knew what they needed and by his love sent exactly what they needed. You can't be God. 
He answers the call even before we call. 